Okay, so thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, um, as particularly talk to the Future of Cities programme. Uh, in terms of the committee, we've talked about flexible cities and ways of defining flexible cities and uh, um, urban livelihoods. And what I'm really talking to today is particularly the response to relatively high levels of urban crime in the Caribbean, and particularly, well, particularly the Caribbean but across Latin America and the Americas as a whole. Uh, and this has really been noted by uh, governments, um, regional and uh, international agencies over the last 10 years with high levels of reported crime, particularly levels of homicide across, across the Americas. Um, and a report in 2007 by the UN and the World Bank highlighted urban violence as a single most important hindrance or roadblock to forms of economic and social development uh, within the Caribbean itself primarily related to uh, increasing levels of informal uh, or, or narco-trafficking. So what I will talk today for the next 40 minutes um, really is about my research in the Caribbean, primarily if, if, uh, on my ongoing research in Dominican Republic, but also uh, glancing to uh, work that I did uh, as a postdoc with, with Colin um, um, in Jamaica. Uh, and, and I've sort of added to that since, since then. Um, in terms of sustainable development, I'm particularly interested in, in social sustainability, social policy and forms of urban governance. And why the Caribbean? Uh, why, why bother with the Caribbean? Well, one is because of clearly the World Bank has highlighted it as a place where urban violence is a particular uh, problem. Secondly, the Caribbean, if you look at the various range of figures, and stats can tell many narratives you want to and don't want to look at, but the Caribbean is, is the high, uh, amongst the highest urbanised areas uh, globally. Um, in terms of regional, regional levels of urbanisation, there are a series of relatively small islands with very high levels of urban populations. So in some ways you're looking at a condensed uh, laboratory, if you will, of urbanised uh, societies in small compact areas. So um, the key themes I'm looking at uh, will be sustainable development, particularly social sustainable development, urban violence, looking at examples from Kingston, Jamaica, primarily uh, at events in Kingston in May 2010, which in many ways brought the Caribbean and high levels of urban crime to the international attention, but also raised the issue of is an island society, Jamaican society, particularly Kingston, a sustainable uh, city form, city structure? One of the things that comes through the research uh, fits in very well with uh, wide research by uh, scholars in Latin America looking at the everyday levels of violence and normative forms of violence where maybe visitors to a society are struck by the high levels of crime, high levels of so-called no-go areas which have become a normative part of urban existence. And clearly a, a common sense approach will say this is not a sustainable way to um, develop urban societies. Um, I've also focused on ideas of urban vulnerabilities, so the, the phrase human resource, resource weakness is filtering throughout uh, various UN and NGO reports in that in, in, in cases of uh, high impact, whether it's an earthquake in, in Haiti or high levels of crime in Bogota or, or, or Kingston, Jamaica, the actual the human resource base, if you will, is unable or has difficulty coping with these high levels of uh, environmental impact or political or, or socially disruptive impacts. Um, clearly, the UN, 10 years into the Millennium Development Goals, have looked at ideas of uh, how development is progressing along the certain indicators in the majority urban world, and we can look at that to, ex to extent, particularly in the ideas of, of, of so-called slum living or informal dwelling. 
But overall, I'll be looking at the ideas of security and urban governance within uh, the Caribbean, but really looking at that to the wider uh, America's region and the UN and World Bank, World Bank responses to economic development and uh, levels of violence. Uh, I'll insult everyone by showing a map. Uh, I'm focusing on Dominican Republic and Jamaica in the centre of, uh, of the Caribbean Sea. Uh, just a comp comparative, Jamaica's a population around 2.3 million people, uh, just under a million or just over a million people living in Kingston, the capital. Dominican Republic, a population of uh, coming up to 10 million people, of which around 2.5 million people living in Santo Domingo. So they are highly urbanised societies, but in both societies, majority of the urban population are living within the two capital cities. So in terms of uh, background, uh, we won't again go over well-known ground, but in terms of the Brundtland Commission's sort of fourfold definition of sustainable development, and particularly in, in interest as a social and urban geographer in the final, or the last, the points three and four. So clearly, you know, the standard definition of sustainable development in terms of inter intergenerational uh, equity, or at least uh, um, not compromising the future, uh, the compromising the ability of future generations. Looking at social, economic and biophysical sustainability. But I'm particularly interested, as I said in, in the third point, intergenerational equity. Uh, ideas of contemporary social justice and social equity. So sustainable development isn't always about the future, it's, it's about the here and now. And particularly looking at levels of social equity, but spatial equity within contemporary cities, uh, within the Americas and within the Caribbean in particular. And uh, for the I think a couple of geographers in the audience, uh, when the idea of space and spatial equity will ring a, 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 ring a bell, and that implicit in the, in the Brundtland Commission is a notion that sustainable development has to be transfrontier. So when we're looking at cities, it is implausible just to consider the urban boundary. It's how does a city mesh with the outlying areas, whether they be defined as rural or whether they be out with the metropolitan, uh, um, provincial or um, city uh, jurisdiction. And that's very important when you look at levels of governance and implementation, if you will, or enforcement of forms of social uh, justice. Uh, I think, Adelina, in your talk, you said you get the... I think you, I was at a seminar Adelina gave and she said, you get these figures all the time. So I, just, this, just for Adelina, just to, to the well-worn figures. But it's particularly in terms of my interest in looking at how urbanisation impacts upon the global south. And so clearly two-thirds of current population expansion is absorbed by cities globally. We are within a global and urban majority. Uh, but 95% of, of demographic growth is occurring in the urban global south. Cities have been point, pinpointed in terms of the lead sites for sustainable initiatives, initiatives to be uh, implemented and monitored and uh, sustained, if you will. Uh, and all the wi wider literature, I'm interested in ideas of urban adaptation and resilience, particularly in the sphere of urban governance and social policy. Um, one of the loose link, well not a loose link really, I, I, Scully's work in the mid-90s had looked at clearly at all the work of uh, new urbanism in the States and there's good old celebration with its white picket fence and very strict levels of social governance, you know, so that new urbanism comes with regulations attached and it quite clearly uh, fits in Hobbesian ideas of sovereignty that really sovereignty doesn't mean freedom for all, it means very clear restrictions upon the majority, upon maybe the minority or majority, to ensure some form of freedom for the majority within a certain area. So I won't focus on there, but what Scully does look at, says, okay, when we look at these new urbanist ideas or ideals, whether it be celebration or in this case seaside in Florida, 
one of the earlier developments of new urbanism um, in the 1970s, uh, Scully uh, su uh, suggested that one cannot, cannot help but hope that the lessons of seaside and of other new towns now taking shape can be applied to the problem of housing for the poor. That is where community is most needed and where it has been most destroyed. Well, Scully was referring in principle to the North American-European axis of urban development, but I'm particularly interested in how ideas, or at least the rhetoric of sustainability, fits into uh, the urban global south, and particularly in this case, uh, in the context here within Jamaica and Dominican Republic. So I, I, I guess anyone who listened to the day programme, which probably, given the audience, is probably a lot of us here, uh, will maybe have come across the May 2010 news of Dudas, Dudas Coke, uh, who essentially a, uh, a story coming out of Kingston, Jamaica, itself a, a city that has been um, troubled, if you well, troubled by high levels of urban violence really since the 60s and 70s in particular, but really became to world attention in May 2010 when the community don stroke informal, um, and I'm, I'm on record here, so be careful, aren't I? Uh, business person, someone whose uh, involvement within community politics and community informal economy has been questioned. But this incident really gave rise to the case of how can a, a, a city be deemed to be socially sustainable? How can it be governed effectively if, in this case, the supporters of Duda's Coke and the community leader in, in Tivoli Gardens in Kingston, in downtown Kingston, essentially his followers were able to take over a large part of downtown Kingston. And so we have the two aspects of informal governance versus formal governance. And on the world media stage, the informal governance, the supporters of Dudas Coke, a community leader, local Don, has actually controlled not only the urban sphere in Kingston for, I think, two and a half weeks, but also in some ways controlled, not controlled, but was dominant in the world media. Uh, and the news coming out of Kingston was of a city out of control. And so this is just kind of interesting in that it links in many of the aspects would see this extreme end of uh, the informal economy, urban violence and the strengths or weaknesses of informal governance in, in, in Caribbean cities today. Clearly, the Shower Posse is the, the group, uh, the gang, really, that Dudas Coke was allegedly linked with, and it, clearly his links were, were, were matched up very directly to the then, well, the current Prime Minister of Jamaica. But while um, the Kingston ex experience is in, in many ways extreme, it does show some of the problems of uh, so-called sustainable urban development and how that can be really... Uh, appear to be working well at the macro level, even the city level, but less so at the neighbourhood level. So when we think of Jamaica in terms of its political development, it has a, a model Westminster economy. Uh, in terms of electoral returns, the two main parties, the, the, the JLP and the PNP, have more or less come in, in and out in power in, in, in what seem to be democratically well-run, fair, clean elections uh, since independence uh, in 1961. But when we look at the micro level, when we look at the communities like Tivoli Gardens and, and, uh, and uh, Trenchtown, Jonestown, we see that each of these neighbourhoods are highly um, exclusive um, urban settlements. In that, uh, in Dudas Coke's uh, neighbourhood, Tivoli Gardens, that really since the 1960s has been a, a JLP, a J Jamaican Labour Party stronghold, previously by Siaga and then by, um, 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 oh gosh, not Patterson, the current... Um, um, head of the uh, Jamaican Labour Party. Yes. 
I've got, gosh, sorry, gone. I'll, it will come back to me as I was going along. But essentially, you see in these in these each uh, neighbourhoods, the so-called garrisons that Stone developed and, and Mark Figueroa has called them in the early nineties, you see return rates of over hundred, well, up to hundred percent for one political figure. So while the overall national result is one of uh, working democracy at the micro level, these neighbourhoods are intensely uh, run along lines of clientelism and patronage. And so you had highly divided uh, urban landscapes, in many ways socially unsustainable in, in the fact that there is high levels of exclusion and very little interchange between neighbourhoods, primarily along lines of political patronage, but also along lines of uh, adherence to community leadership. Um, so what works well within a neighbourhood in some ways, uh, at some times, also leads to very highly divisive and uh, you know, arguably unsustainable urban social patterning and networks in the long term. Okay, I won't go through these uh, too much. These are just a few quotes, and these are just images from a, a newspaper, the main national gleaner, uh, taken in, in March 2009. These, these are spread throughout the newspaper, but just show the incidents of those affected by uh, murder, really, within Jamaica, within Kingston, actually, specifically. It just shows the levels of uh, normal visual. And, uh, I did a separate paper looking at the visual analysis of death within Jamaican press, and it, it shows how it appears throughout newspapers and the media representation of death and what seem like overt levels of violence become normalised and become part and parcel of uh, everyday uh, media correspondence. And you see increasingly there are monthly, well not increasingly, there are monthly roundups of a number of levels of uh, murder. Uh, and so we have the, almost a tally of deaths per month uh, as a monthly roundup, in this case, yeah, in the Gleaner. Um, but again, it's just a reportage of uh, untenable, well, not untenable, but unsustainable levels of, of urban violence. Uh, then it can go into irony. So a bloody start to 2009, 13 killed in 48 hours. Uh, so, the, and, and this is the, the, the part from the newspaper. The killings have spoiled efforts by the National Transformation Programme and the Peace Management Initiative to have a crime-free January. So within 48 hours, there were 13 deaths. And I mean, that is, is shocking, and, it, and it, it, it is a sick irony, I guess. But it does show that, you know, there are, there's a lot happening. The government is not sitting and just sort of trying to um, militarize out, if you will, or police out the crime. It has a whole range of init peace initiatives uh, and uh, adopting various measures to try and address these levels of uh, high levels of crime. But again, from bad to worse, uh, if you go to the Kingston Public Hospital, you obviously all may have heard of ambulance chasers or insurance salespeople, I guess, uh, in North America or maybe in Europe as well. But here outside Kingston Public Hospital, there are touts for funeral operators. And so uh, when, uh, when a death has been recorded, they, the family are confronted by funeral operators who will offer bargains. So if you have your funeral service with us, we offer baseball caps, you have badges with the deceased names on. There are a certain type of high-level marketing to get this death business. And so, as a, as a final line said, it's a very competitive industry right now, so you have to make it attractive at, a, at afford, affordable costs. I mean, one of the few economic growth areas in Kingston, Jamaica, is or are funeral services. Um, but you can, that, you know, the argument here is you just become immune to this type of report, re, you know, reporting. But what is interesting here, and this was early as 2001, and this year is chosen because this was a year that the number of uh, violent deaths surpassed the thousand mark. And the thousand mark was seen to be the, uh, you know, the watershed, if you will. And what is interesting, in, if you look at Jamaican political history, 
the elections in 1980 were seen as the, the high tide of urban of, of civil political violence in some respects. But in 2001, the number of deaths, and that was 800 deaths murders per year, particularly around the election time. But in 2001, the number of deaths passed 1,000. Uh, passed but we hear, see, see here in how the government's re recorded the perpetrators uh, of violence. There's a very clear separation between those who are gunmen and those who are, uh, and those who are civilians, i.e. those living within the downtown neighbourhoods, those living within informally governed areas were seen to be not essentially fully, full, uh, full Jamaican citizens. They're somehow recategorised as gunmen and those others perpetrators of violence who were not alleged to be part of a gang or an informal group were civilians. I mean, that might be in terms of domestic abuse, etc., etc. Um, and so you see how society then becomes divided into those who are part of the formal government structure and they have all the benefits and access as, as a citizen would and those who are living out with uh, uh, formal areas of, of, of uh, government or policing, uh, surveillance and control. Um, I've, I've did this graph a few a while ago, too long ago, and I, I wince every time I see it. Those who do st stats in the room will be wincing even louder than I. It is a diagrammatic uh, representation to show the report I mentioned at the start, 2007, the World Bank UN, um, that really shows that the Caribbean, uh, in this report, uh, in the collated figures, uh, is the most uh, violent uh, region in the world. And I think you can question, given the figures were coming from up to 2005, why the Middle East uh, and Southwest Asia are, are right down at the bottom. But nevertheless, in terms of per capita murders per thousand population, the Caribbean headed the list. Um, and that really gave a rise to temporary uh, high-level uh, media visibility uh, in the Economist, etc., and globally. But again, sort of highlighted the Caribbean not so much as an area of, uh, of Bob Marley, Ganja, cricket, salsa, etc., but really a highly urbanised area with very high levels of crime, uh, which were, in the World Bank, UN, governments and international agencies' point of view, restricting economic development. So it wasn't access to formal education, it wasn't uh, access to um, safe drinking water, access to, 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 to adequate uh, medical services. It was high levels of urban violence, particularly in capital cities, which were restricting the uh, development of, of local economies. And that is key when we come to see uh, in the final sort of 20 minutes a case study from the Dominican Republic of, of the government's response to what they perceive to be high levels uh, of, of growing levels of urban crime. So these figures are collated from UN, primary UN reports up to 2000. They are again uh, another, uh, um, not, not a happy set of slides, but it's a number of murder rates per thousand. And if we look at the first 10 up here, um, Am I blocking the screen, actually? Have I sat in the middle of all the slides without realising? Um, but what I, I will show you, the first ten there, Jamaica is, is, comes at rank number third, is the third most uh, violent country in terms of murder rates uh, globally. And Dominican Republic is 15th, and the other case study there. I mean, those questions, are get, those stats, again, are representative, and you can look a bit deeper into the figures and, and, and sort of pick them apart. But what it does show, for Latin America as a whole, that seven out of the, the top ten, if you will, murder uh, states in the world are in Latin America. And it kind of just emphasises what the regional and uh, international agencies have been saying, that violence is a, is a, is a fundamental problem 
to all forms of development, really, within the Americas, particularly within Latin America and the Caribbean. So just moving to the, to the primary case study, um, I've been doing research in Dominican Republic uh, since about 1992. And um, in the last four years, I've been working particularly on urban violence, primarily because when I went back to go to in do interviews in, 19, in 2006, a 10-year follow-up to interviews that I'd done for my postgraduate work, I found that when I, rather than ask people about immigration and forms of nationalism and uh, discrimination that I had done in 1996 vis-a-vis -vis Haitian immigrants within the Dominican Republic, when I went back to this, the same neighborhoods, uh, A, they were under curfew, and, and which made walking around doing interviews far more difficult, but B, you know, people just talked about delinquencia. Uh, levels of urban violence was what people were talking about. And yes, immigration was an issue. Yes, level, access to employment was an issue. But it became very clear that while I was trying to talk about immigration and uh, other aspects of, of, of politics, urban violence, the way that their uh, residence lives have been transformed, particularly in the last four years, was the key narrative that was being relayed. So that's a case of research changing to, to, to fit the reality. And so what I've done every two years, and we'll be going back in January, is carrying out interviews, so it's primarily ethno ethnographic research, in uh, Santo Domingo, in the capital city of the Dominican Republic, particularly in one neighbourhood, uh, in, in, uh, in Vies Agricolas, uh, and just seeing how levels of, of urban crime have uh, evolved, or how they've been impacted, particularly by a recent police initiative. And this police initiative is uh, what I'm going to focus on. It's called Barrio Seguro. It's a safe neighbourhood policing initiative. And in essence, it's a rolling out of uh, zero tolerance policing, uh, nightly curfews within uh, primarily, initially, 13 selected neighbourhoods in Santo Domingo. So it, uh, we'll, we'll go through in a slightly more detail. It is the government's response to reclaiming those streets to reflect if we see what's happened in Kingston, Jamaica in May. It's the Dominican government's attempt four years ago saying this is not going to happen in Dominican Republic because we are going to militarise parts of downtown Santo Domingo and make sure that the government retains formal control of these neighbourhoods. And through interviews with not only with residents but with police officers and those in government, the notion of regaining control not only of, of downtown Santo Domingo but also implicit reclaiming Dominican sovereignty, reclaiming the state for the people, and you know, in, in not so open or closed brackets, gaining votes, has been the key initiative, the key development initiative, I should say, for the Dominican government since 2006. And it's a highly visible, it's a high, highly media-friendly um, development policy, social policy, that the Dominican government has been pursuing for four years consistently. And that just maps out that very close link that's been made between economic development and levels of urban violence within the Caribbean and in, in Dominican Republic and say Jamaica particularly. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jose Armando Polanco Gomez, the chief of national police, uh, there are weekly, every Sunday night, there are media, there's a half hour government program saying how well this zero tolerance program is doing. And so on, this is on Monday, the chief of national police gave a new set of stats and he said that, that you know, get, once again, there have been 200 arrests in the last month, that all the cases have been thoroughly investigated, all those guilty have been, uh, uh, um, are, are being put through the courts. But again, he heralded, say, we're, we're facing um, 
we're, 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 we're facing a new form of policing. We've modernised our methods and our forms of command. So we've seen in the last four years a real attempt to revolutionise, to modernise Dominican policing and, and through new forms of policing or forms of zero tolerance policing to kind of revolutionise and modernise the state. And we'll come back into that close link between uh, modernity, technology and development that the government has made and, and sort of implicitly puts this within the policing methods it's employing. So Polanco Gomez uh, in, in, the, in his wider speech argued that, not surprisingly, the police is there to respond to the demands of the security and to guarantee public order. And so again across the Americas and I think elsewhere we see a very close link between ideas of security and ideas of development. And a, a developed nation or a developing nation is a secure uh, nation, secure for its, its, its people, secure for economic development. And the plan is called, uh, development, the programme is called the Plan for Democratic Security. And it builds very closely on the 2002 plan by President Oribe in Colombia, uh, again called the Plan for Democratic Security, where the Colombian government uh, essentially did a, a full-scale militarisation uh, of uh, Colombian state's um, territory to reclaim the state from the, uh, the FARC and the, um, I guess, the drug cartels operating in Colombia. So it, it's, its background is, is, is from two ways. In terms of its rhetoric, it comes very much from the Colombian plan, which is a multi, I think, probably billion dollar plan uh, by the Colombian government uh, with, with help from various allies, primarily North USA, to combat essentially a civil war fueled by uh, um, drug cartels, etc. But it also fits into um, ideas of security in Dominican Republic. And if we look at this, uh, the, the emblem that appears everywhere, it refers back to a kind of a, 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 a bucolic past, if you will, where Dominican government, Dominican territory was safe, sovereign, uh, nuclear households, mum, dad, two kids or 2.1 kids, etc. And, th and this sort of emblem of secure Dominican, reclaiming Dominican space, reclaiming the streets, not only for the economy, but for family um, and for... Uh, 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 in many ways, a mythical Dominican past is part and parcel of this... Uh, Democratic Security, Barrio Seguro, Safe Neighbourhood Programme. Okay, and it's a major operation. It's the Attorney General, the Secretary of the State for the Interior and Police, and the National Police. And, and really over the last four years, uh, it has been the primary development policy, as I mentioned, for the Dominican Republic um, as a whole. Um, it initiated in 2004, and I'll just show a uh, just a, translate quickly a, a bit of the Lionel Fernandez's first speech as president. He remains as a president of the Dominican Republic, but you can see making those links between reclaiming uh, the streets, making streets safe, and reclaiming national uh, nationhood or sovereignty comes through very clearly within Fernandez's uh, opening address in 2004. So the Republic, uh, Dominican Republic, can't continue the way it's going. It can't. Con continue uh, with uh, citizens insecurity, with a traffic of influences, and, and this, if you read the west, rest of this, his speech, relates to two key influences, both deemed to be bad. One, clearly drug trafficking, two, the influence of Haitian, uh, ongoing Haitian immigration to the Dominican Republic. And we'll see this policing policy aims to address both these, directly by stamping out crime, drug trafficking, the informal economy, but also informally by restricting or uh, more, more directly deporting uh, Haitian immigrants, i.e. those people who are stopped and searched, who don't have identity papers during curfew or during the day, become part of the 2,000 um, Haitian Dominicans deported each year. 
many of whom, or majority of whom, will have legal right to be resident in the Dominican Republic. So you have a sort of a de facto deportation or anti-immigration policy operating at the same time as the um, zero-tolerance uh, anti-crime policy. Um, so concluding with the traffic of influences, with clientelism, with the illicit rich, uh, illegal enrichment, with the abuse of power, with disrespect, above all, with a lack of gravitas or a seriousness in everything. Uh, let's build a new society, more, more solidarity, more just, more prosperous, more prosperity, more humane, more dem democratic, more transparent and more participatory. So you can see it's a presidential launch address, but it's also making very clear links between <coughs> reclaiming the state, reclaiming the nation and addressing certain of these bad influences. And there again is the Barrio Suguro um, Safe Neighbourhood emblem. And again, every Sunday night there is a half an hour news show that gives an update of arrests. So it's a, just a tally showing how many people have been arrested for what type of, of, of crime, all under the umbrella of this Barrio Seguro uh, programme. Um, so this is Santo Domingo, um, the capital, the uh, kind of blurry map, but done by good old-fashioned cartographic pen and stencils, so I'm keeping it. Um, the dotted line is, is essentially what the, the area that's been singled out initially in 2006 when the plan was launched, uh, La Zona Norte, the northern zone, um, which didn't have a name until 2006. So the background story is uh, the length of the city would probably stretch along the back wall. We're looking here at the colonial centre. Uh, we're looking at those 13 neighbourhoods um, that appear now in just behind my head. So these are the 13 neighbourhoods uh, that are singled out. And the next map will, will show a bit more topography. But I should say, how are these 13 neighbourhoods singled out? On what basis? Well, these 13 neighbourhoods were singled out as the key sites where uh, zero-tolerance policing would be enforced. Each neighbourhood has around 15,000 people in, 10 to 15,000 people. So we're looking at between 150 to 200,000 people living in this neighbourhood. The city itself is around 2.5 million people, so it's a tiny minority. Um, these traditionally have been the lower income neighbourhoods. There hasn't been no statistics, there are no crime reports, so you really can't say that these are the highest levels of crime, they're just the lower income neighbourhoods. So there's an implicit link made between poverty and problematic areas. So if we follow through some of the uh, um, the work by Dykech in, 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 in particularly looking at French policing, what Dykech argues is that what's happening in many contemporary forms of policing is that rather than address issues, a spatial matrix is used. So the policing uh, initiatives will address areas. So, so by default, these areas become rarefied as problem areas, and those residents within these areas become problems themselves. And what we can see here in La Zona Norte, now uh, in 2006, La Zona Norte didn't exist. If I were doing interviews in Gasque here, or even within the area in Capotillo or, or La Cienega, no one would really know what La Zona Norte was. La Zona Norte evolved as, as so, you know, almost creating a ghetto in 2006 with this new policing program. So now when I did follow-up interviews in Gasque, people would say, well, we wouldn't go to La Zona Norte because it's a no-go zone. No one goes there. A few months beforehand, they probably have no real reason to go, but it wouldn't be saying no one goes there. And it's very clear how this spatial, if you will, reification of 30 neighbourhoods has created a new urban landscape. Um, and in interviews uh, with those in the office rather than on, in the police force operating, they do talk about creating a cordon sanitaire. 
you know, so implicitly they're, they're protecting those people living here, which are by and large it sort of go middle income uh, to upper income classes spreading out to the west, uh, and, and, and by and large lower income uh, residents here. But in many ways, we're talking about protective barrier rather than the, uh, uh, well, the protective barrier in some ways, but they also talk about cleansing these neighborhoods. And in many ways, the translation can be difficult, but the direct translation from Spanish is very, very direct. Cleansing neighborhoods, cordon sanitaire. Um, um, I, I've, I've got the quotes in my paper, but they talk about uh, it's a mass of problems a mass of problems that need to be dealt with uh, in the most effective way possible. And these, these are type of, there's very little um, uh, nuancing of the language, um, or maybe it's my poor translation, but uh, very, very clearly that addressed that these are the problems. It's these areas of the problems and those who living in them are also by default part of the problem. Um, just to show you that in terms of these neighbourhoods, the, the, the riverine neighbourhoods are primarily in informal uh, settlements without any, uh, mostly without direct provision of water, etc. Uh, but in large part, about two-thirds of La Zona Norte are, uh, have formal planning, uh, tarmac roads, access to, 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 should we say, the usual urban services when there's electricity. Um, so that's just some of the topography. And this is kind of a, a useful diagram of sort of cartoon that is proudly pinned in the office of the Barrio Seguro headquarters and was shown to me with pride. And it was when, just before the, there was a 13, uh, 13th barrio added and so the 12 barrios is a mistake. But this was used to show what the exact, this is what was going to happen uh, with uh, intense policing, the residents of the Barrio Seguro neighborhoods would be able to sleep at night thus allow them to work uh, with safety, with clarity the following day and develop a local economy. And in interviews with government officials and with residents who were in favour, some in favour, some against obviously, the argument was, well, this is, this is, we need this to be able to resurrect the economy because you know, how can we work if we're scared to sleep in our beds at night? So that's a very visual, um, visual metaphor that was verbally expressed several times. So. Um, just in, in context, um, in July 2006, when the Barrio Seguro program, uh, program was launched, uh, there were 16,000 military and police officers were dispatched to these 13 neighborhoods. So that's the largest militarized uh, mobilization of Dominican military or police since 1965 when there was a civil war, the April Revolution. And that involved an outright civil war uh, between the Reds and the Blues, and it involved the uh, uh, invasion stroke arrival of uh, US Marines. Uh, it made national, um, international news. So we have a comparison here whereby there is a militarization in 1965 for an out and out civil war, uh, and then there's a militarization in the summer of 2006 for a police initiative on these 13 neighborhoods that have been defined as uh, requiring reclaiming, as it were, re requiring reclamation. So uh, the dramatic transformation in the urban landscape, uh, really since 2006, what the Net Barrio Seguro program uh, involves is essentially eventide curfews um, and essentially the, the stop and search. And one of the key aspects which I mentioned earlier is that uh, if you're not carrying your cedula, your identity card on you, you, are, you essentially will be taken and arrested, put in prison overnight until you're proven innocent. Uh, and this has a direct impact upon those without uh, settlers or identity cards. Many low-income Dominicans will not have these type of form of fornication, but he might have P 
people who can vouch for them, but it really impacts upon those people who have Haitian uh, Dominican ancestry. And there might be sixth or fifth or sixth generation migrants who legally can claim Dominican uh, citizenship, but who for a series of uh, um, institutional and, and uh, individual forms of discrimination have never been able to gain access to formal state papers. So you have within a population of nine and, nine and a half million, it's estimated up to a million people of Haitian Dominican origin who are stateless. They have never been, in, uh, or majority have never been in Haiti, or they cannot claim Haitian citizenship, neither have they been granted Dominican citizenship. So we're looking at a floating population of, of stateless residents, uh, and these are the people that in, in, in many ways are directly affected by the, uh, the stop and search, arrest without the papers um, policy that come under the curfew. So there's four key points of the uh, Safe Neighbourhoods Programme I'm going to look at um, very briefly and, and then sort of wind up and look at the, the overall picture of how this very particular programme fits into wider issues of uh, sustainable uh, development and social policy in the Americas. The first aspect of the policing programme is the, I mentioned it's not the, the image if you will, but the notion that the police would have to have national or international training, particularly North American training, to modernise the those on the ground. So there, uh, 1,500 police officers were sent to um, police training facilities um, in uh, North Carolina, New York State. And this was again was part and parcel of the program. It's saying, look, we have Dominican officers. Uh, the, the head of the police, uh, Rancia, had said 40% of our current police force are moonlighting. 40% are operating as uh, watchmen. Uh, these are um, security guards, essentially doing other jobs. And so 40% of the police force weren't actually doing their job, they were going elsewhere. And it's acknowledged, uh, Polanco, again, although he was saying how wonderful the results are, only two weeks ago he said, yes, corruption is a problem within the police force. And part of this drive to at least show there's a transition and modernization of the Dominican formal policing was to have a, a overseas or North American training. This fits in very clearly with a second point in that those officers in the Barrio Suguru program have new uniforms. There's a specific uniform that, with the logo, it's a, 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 an excellent branding process. It's a revitalization of how the police look and, 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 and that way it's helped how they operate. So the new Barrio Suguru police force ha, had a, a new set of Harley-Davidson motorbikes new Jeeps. But what is interesting in terms of technology is that each Jeep was fitted with a laptop and each uh, officer, and the focus here was on community policing, had a GPS system. So there are two, there are kind of two key disjunctures of logic there. Firstly, it was uh, in interviews with um, the police officers and interviewed Colonel, Colonel Brown, who was the, the head of the Barrio Seguro um, program. Uh, and I just have to say to a side, when I had an interview with Colonel Brown, I was fairly scared. I wasn't scared. I was scared, yes, have that on record. You know, he, he, the Dominican police officers have reputations. And I was there, uh, and uh, it's very easy to be a very cynical, wibbly-wobbly academic um, and saying, well, this is terrible. And Colonel Brown is absolutely the antithesis of what I expected. He was very self-critical of the programme. He was against terms about zero tolerance. He, he was well read on the literature. He actually was one of the most um, nuanced and 
I mean, maybe he's good, well trained, but it was a very, very detailed interview and very reflexive on what he was doing. And he acknowledged straight off that yes, the problem with this spatially focused policing is that crime is displaced. So if you look at studies at Leeds University, studies in New York, we, you see that under Giuliani and Bratton, crime was just displaced in New Jersey, or crime was displaced from another neighborhood. So I think it's very easy for academics to be cynical, um, but Dominican police and many are doing what they perceive to be the best they can do at this time. So I just want to say as an aside, because it's easy to waft in and be cynical about everything. But in terms of technology, laptops and police officers said, well, we have the laptops ready, but there's no data. We can't access anything. There are no databases. Uh, and the second point is GPS system. Well, if you have a community police officer, why do you need a GPS system to work your way around your neighborhood? But it fitted in with the image of a modernized, developed police force that had new Jeeps, new bikes, but new technology. And that fits into the wider development rhetoric and practice that Fernandez and the government have been um, pursuing really for the last six years. And that has made, to many res respects, made Dominican Republic in many respects, the economic miracle of the Caribbean. So uh, economic reports have said Dominican Republic actually stands out in the region as an economically well off, or at least adv advancing, if you will, progressing society. Which goes into the thing, well, how come, how we get higher levels of, of urban violence? matched with economic development, but that's something probably to discuss later. This last couple of points really, intensive surveillance, the curfew operates uh, from 10 at night to 6 in the morning. For those people who live in Latin America, life generally happens outside. So what we find that while the streets become in brackets safer, uh, you have uh, not two kids and two point, not two kids and two, fam two parents inside, you have the average household size in the neighborhoods I was working in was around eight or nine. And the intergenerational, the here and now of intergenerational, uh, intergenerational sort of uh, um, relationships, et cetera, meant that grandparents were no longer observing the kids on the streets while parents are working or, or brothers are working. Everyone was inside very small houses every night uh, yeah, for, for, for more than is probably socially or, 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 or emotionally healthy. So you had a transformation, not only of daytime, but of nighttime and social st structures. And that has had a massive impact upon how households operate. Um, so that, that's just, uh, something that came through in interviews. So save streets, but what social cost? Very uh, sort of finally, explicit connect connections were made with immigration. So where, why is violence increasing? Well, some said it's could, since 2003, Dominicans who were arrested in the States have been deported directly to the Dominican Republic, and it's been alleged that they can just sort of take their hard-earned criminal skills and operate them in Dominican Republic. Um, responses from residents of that is that they should be assisted and rehabilitated. And there is some evidence that, that crime increased as deportation levels from the states uh, increased. Secondly, there is a clear link made between high levels of violence and Haitians. And I won't go into this too much, but it fits in with this anti-Haitian rhetoric that is pervasive and was part of my PhD and is very well documented, but how this meshes very neatly with uh, zero tolerance uh, policing within these neighborhoods which have been rolled out across the country. Um, so just really to conclude now, it's very it's evident from reports and from a vast growing level of academic research uh, that urban violence has been increasing across the Americas and remains a primary concern uh, on social, political and economic perspectives. 
clearly not only regional formal economies are disrupted, but at a small scale, particularly when looking at household and, and, and neighbourhood economies, these are affected not only by high levels of urban violence in terms of channels, communications, where you can go, who you can work with, but also in terms of the police response, uh, surveillance, uh, but curfews actually has had an impact, has a great impact upon local economies in, in the neighbours I've, I've been interviewing. Um, displacement of, of any space, as I mentioned, any spatially uh, framed policing creates displacement. That's just what happens, really. But the fourth point I think is the most interesting. It stems back to the 2007 report. And the, there's a notion in the 80s to fix the economic ills, if you will, of the Americas or poorer countries. Structural adjustment aimed to uh, roll out forms of transforming economies to fit into a new neoliberal agenda. Now what the World Bank and UN report said in 2007, what they've said since, they've highlighted the case of Dominican Republic uh, as separate from the, the, the wider um, Mano Duro or more intensive militarization programs in El Salvador or Colombia, but they've said Dominican Republic program seems to be a very good way forward uh, this small-scale, intensive policing seems a good way forward to try and combat the problem of urban crime in the Americas. And there's a notion there that this kind of initiative, this policing initiative, can be rolled out across the Caribbean, across the, um, the Americas, in some form, if you will, of some sort of social adjustment. What are the problems today? Well, maybe this form of policing is a, uh, a, a not a quick fix, but a, a generic fix. Uh, to be looked into, and it's currently being recommended by uh, UN and World Bank. So thank you for that, and I'll finish. Thank you.